Today's message originated in the pulpit of Covenant Community Church by lead pastor Alan Ellis. Covenant Community Church lives to glorify Christ by making disciples who are growing in relationship with God in worship, then with the church in fellowship, and with the world in witness. Now, here's today's message. We titled this part of the David series, Men Have a Problem. And of course, I shared that with you that Christy, uh, after the Trump tape was uh, let loose on, on the whole world, Christy came through the door and looked at me and said, you men have a problem. And I'm like, yep, yep, I've known about it for a long time. I agree. Us men have a problem. Well, it, it's pretty apparent in this passage, and again, if you have your Bibles with you, can turn to Second Samuel chapter 16, and we're looking at this passage that Jake read this morning uh, in our hearing, verses 15 through 23. Of course, this is the, uh, the low moment in David's life. We've been with David in the ups and downs, and now, as uh, Robert Barron says, as David hits bottom, his rebellious son enters Jerusalem. So David is, as we've seen, he's exiting stage left. He's getting out of Dodge. He's leaving Jerusalem because his son Absalom, who has not been able to um, achieve a complete uh, reconciliation with, is rebelling against his father's authority, usurping, usurping his authority. He wants to become, he's the heir apparent, but he wants to, uh, take the throne by force. And so as David leaves Jerusalem, Absalom comes into Jerusalem, and we have in this passage then uh, some advice that Absalom is getting from his uh, number one advisor, uh, who of course was Ahithophel. Ah- Ahithophel, and this is important to remember, uh, ah- Ahithophel, I know it's a strange name, but a uh, Ahithophel, we won't have to put up with him much longer because in verse 23 of chapter 17, he passes off the scene. He commits suicide. And he commits suicide because um, Absalom is not taking his advice. And that was not a good omen for Ahithophel. When he is being pushed to the side, this man who at the very last verse of chapter 16 says, when this man gave advice, it was like God speaking. And as the story unfolds in chapter 17 that we'll see, uh, Lord willing, uh, Ahithophel is pushed to the side uh, to be replaced by Hushai the archite. And Hushai is actually a plant. He's on David's side. And this all, of course comes about because, as we saw uh, two weeks ago, if you look at the, the last half of verse 14 in chapter 17, for the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. It was God's purpose um, to bring about Absalom's failure. And one of the ways that God brought about Absalom's failure was to remove 
Ahithophel as an advisor. And of course, in verse 23, Ahithophel actually takes his own life. So then if we go back to this passage, why have we called this uh, men have a problem? It's because when Absalom asks Ahithophel for advice, Ahithophel, who again was Bathsheba's grandfather. So as as the phrase goes, Ahithophel has a dog in this fight. He obviously um, doesn't appreciate David's attention paid to his granddaughter Bathsheba, uh, with resulting in the death of, of uh, Uriah, her husband. So Absalom asks, "What what should I do now?" Political leaders are always testing the waters, asking other people for their opinion. And Ahithophel's advice is strange to our ears if you look at it um, in this passage. Verse 20, then Absalom said to Ahithophel, give give your counsel. Uh, What shall we do? And Ahithophel uh, said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father. And the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So this is a, a dissonant to our ears when we read this, because um, um, the, the act of concubinage or having more than uh, one wife or a plurality of female partners is falls on our ears as a strange and, and dissonant sound. So not only do we have to deal with that, but we also have to deal with, now these were David's quote-unquote wives, and now Ahithophel's advice to Absalom is that you... Um, Go in, and he's not talking about having tea with them at noon. He's talking about um, using these concubines the way that his father would have used them. And Ahithophel says, "If if anybody doubts that you're committed to sitting on the throne of Israel, this will convince them, because this is such a heinous act." it will convince them that there's no way that you and your father can reconcile after this. David will wash his hands of you, and their hands, your followers, their hands will be strengthened. They will be convinced that you, in fact, uh, want the job, and you're willing to go to any extent to secure the job. Robert Alter explains, and we saw this, this is just by way of review, cohabiting with the sexual consorts of a ruler is an assertion of having taken over all his prerogatives of dominion. Ahithophel's shrewd counsel especially addresses the effect on public opinion of the action proposed. After it, no one will be able to imagine a reconciliation between Absalom and his father, and so... The hand of Absalom's supporters will be strengthened, for no one will hedge his support thinking that David and Absalom will somehow come to terms. So, 
that's the political machinations or the political motivation behind what sounds to us as strange advice. Why would Ahithophel give this as first counsel to Absalom? Well, the reason is is that it solidifies uh, their political power base. Alter goes on to say, so Bathsheba's grandfather offers a brutal counsel that is certainly born of his deep resentment at the way his granddaughter had been treated by the cavalier and manipulative king, a recommendation that was from a pragmatic standpoint. See, this is what rules in um, the lives of politicians. It's not necessarily, they don't necessarily ask, well, what's the right thing to do? They ask, what uh, what is the thing that I can do that will further... um, incentivize my uh, realizing my uh, goals and purposes. So from a pragmatic standpoint, it was a clever bit of advice. But it doesn't turn out well, as uh, we see, it doesn't turn out well at all for Ahithophel to the point where he feels like his life is irredeemable and he, and he takes his own life In verse 23, that should be of chapter 17. So what are we uh, to do? So we're, this is a problematic passage. I suppose that, you know, if you're talking to a person who's not a believer, this is not the passage you would take them to. You, you would not take them to this passage. Hey, have you ever heard the story about David and Absalom and, and the concubines that they shared? Uh, we would say that it doesn't really present the Bible in the best light. It doesn't present God necessarily in the best light. And and what do we do about it? I, I thought that Christians believed in monogamy. You know, one man, one woman, marriage, the the uh, the ordinance, or some people view it as a sacrament, the sacrament of marriage. Uh, what do we do with a passage like this? And I think that the overall guiding principle that helps us um, sort through this is is to not just isolate the passage and just deal with the passage in isolation from the rest of scriptures. We know that that's, that gets us into trouble. When we take one passage of scripture and uh, that appears to be out of sync with what the rest of the Bible teaches, and we um, we raise that passage up and say, well, uh, what about this singular passage? Uh, the the duty of a Christian, of a believer, is to see, to try and determine what the whole counsel of God's word uh, says about any given subject. So that's one of the ways that we get into trouble, and that's one of the way, ways that cults have spun off, is that they take an obscure passage similar to this, and they make a theological mountain out of what really should be a molehill. But nonetheless, that's not to dismiss uh, what we stumble over in this passage. The Bible is a progressive you and I who, who live in the year 2017, we have the benefit of looking back now 
on how the Bible was, who the Bible was written by, how the Bible, all 66 books of the Bible came together, how the Old Testament or the Older Testament relates to the New Testament. Why is it that there are Christians today? Why aren't we all Jews? Why aren't we all descendants of Abraham? Um, and so we have the benefit then of looking back and processing, synthesizing all of this material. So in that sense then, the Bible is a progressive revelation. That's why if you, if you turn, and just for a moment, we've looked at this before, but if you turn over to Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, this is Jesus' commentary on the law. He gives, as we heard uh, during um, one of the inauguration prayers, we heard the Beatitudes prayed. The attitudes of Jesus are given in verses 2 through 11. But Jesus says in verse 17, look at this, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. So now he's talking about the Holy Scriptures of his own people. He says, I haven't come to abolish them, but he says, I've come to fulfill them, which means that his own people, during the time that Jesus was alive, Jesus felt that they had missed the essential or ultimate meaning of the law and the prophets. He said, I'm not... I've not come to do away with them. We would expect that out of a revolutionary. A revolutionary would step up and say, oh, the whole system is broken, just um, hit the delete button. Jesus doesn't say that. He says, I have great respect. And he tells us he has great respect for it when he says in verse 18, for truly I say to you until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot. Those are the smallest um Marks that could be made in a Greek text, not an iota, not a dot. We would say the dotting of an I, the crossing of a T, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus is asserting a great personal reverence and respect for the what we would know as the Old Testament text. He said, I'm not coming to destroy it, but I am coming to fulfill it. And that means... Jesus is placing himself here above the law. Now, when we read the scripture, I don't, uh, the scripture, and this is the overwhelming sense for a believer. When you read the Bible, the Bible is really reading you. How many know that to be true? It, James tells us it's as though a man looks in a mirror, right? So when we read the scripture, we are not standing as a judge over the scripture. The scripture, this is the principle of the Reformation, the scripture is standing in judgment over us and our lives. How many have ever read a passage of scripture and you're like, ooh, well that's, that's, you know, you say it's good, what you really, what you mean is it's good and it's bad because something about the scripture the Holy Spirit has taken and applied it to you. Jesus in this passage, he's the only human being who had the right to do this. And it's an amazing assertion on his part. 
he is standing in judgment over the text. He's saying, I have an allegiance to the text. I have a loyalty to the text. I'm not going to destroy one iota, the smallest uh, little comma that you could make in the text. But I am here to tell you that you have missed the true and essential meaning of what they were writing about. And Jesus goes on to do this, and he picks out several passages from the law and the prophets. For example, um, in a, a well-known one, look in verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now, if my memory serves me correctly, that's one of the Ten Commandments. It's not one of the Ten Suggestions. It's one of the Ten Commandments. You have heard it said, so people are hearing Jesus teach his disciples, what is he going to say about this? He has just uh, proclaimed his loyalty to the, the text, but now it is as though he is critiquing the application of the text. Uh, Paul even tells us that uh, the letter kills, the letter kills, but that the Spirit gives life. So it is possible to understand um, the letter or the law on a certain level, but miss its deeper meaning. So you can be very broad in your understanding of the text, but still too shallow to really grasp what is behind the text, what is underneath the text, what the text is really driving at. So Jesus uses, we'll use this as an example because it really has to do with our subject, men have a problem. Look in verse 27. You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you. Now here, Jesus is climbing above the text. You and I can't do this. Or let me, let me say this, you, you and I should not do this. A believer should always be willing to come up underneath the yoke of Scripture. I'm not the judge of Scripture. Scripture is the judge of me. But Jesus stands above the text and he says, this is how it, you, you've heard this, you've heard, as, as though Jesus is saying, you've heard this sermon a million times. But I want to give you the, the true depth of understanding for this passage, thou shalt not commit adultery. John chapter 8, right? Uh, the, the woman who was, uh, the passage starts, uh, the text, the woman taken in the act of adultery. The Old Testament passage, a man and a woman uh, who violated their, the, the vows of marriage, committed adultery. The Old Testament required that not just the woman, but both the man and the woman would die. But in the eighth chapter of John, 
the Pharisees bring this woman who was caught in the act of adultery, just the woman, to Jesus. And they're, they're using her as a pawn because their understanding is here. The law is clear. Uh, Moses has said that this woman deserves to die. And, and then the question comes, what do you say, Jesus? Now, I don't know if those Pharisees in the 8th chapter of John had heard Jesus say this over here in the 27th verse of the 5th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew or not, but, but we, we can assume that they did. They, we can assume that at least it was rumored that Jesus sets himself above the text. And they, they put Jesus in a position where he was going to have to be Either he was going to have to uh, proclaim his loyalty to the text of Moses as it was understood in that day, or he was going to have to, to, to make himself out as being a greater prophet than Moses with a different interpretation. We all know that what, what Jesus did, he stooped down in the sand, right? And he, he began to write. This is the only time in Scripture, John chapter 8, where Jesus ever is recorded where Jesus ever wrote anything. We don't know what he wrote. The speculation is that he began to write out the sins of the men who had brought the woman into his presence. How interesting that would have been. How revealing that would have been, right? And Jesus then asked them the question, you, you, look, You've brought this woman, you say she deserves uh, to die. And there they have, apparently they've gathered a, a mob, mob justice, stones in their hand, ready to stone the woman. But by the way, history tells us that under Jewish law, stoning of woman, women in this situation happened very rarely. Normally there was, there was another way that was sought to try to work out the situation. And Jesus looks up and he says, you that are without sin, you go ahead and cast the first stone. And then it's interesting, isn't it? Because the Bible says in the eighth chapter of John, you have to read it. Go ahead. Bible's the most exciting book ever been written. The Bible says this, no, John tells us that beginning from the oldest to the youngest, that they just began to, to wander off. Now, what, what does this uh, tell us? It tells us that the longer you live, the longer you immerse yourself in Scripture, the easier it is to reconcile yourself with Jesus asserting himself over the text. In other words, the old gray-headed man, the hoary head, listened to what Jesus had to say. Now the younger guys were thinking, there's got to be, a, he's got us now, but there's got to be, a, I'm not going to give up on the stone quite yet. But the older guys, my, my sister said the other day, she, she said she thought that when people got older, they got more conservative. I'll tell you what, when people get older, they get crankier. But as people, as we age, we should get wiser, right? Not set in our ways, but understanding the true way of salvation. And this is a passage in the 8th chapter of the Gospel of John really that, that supports this idea 
when you're young, full of uh, vinegar and something else, which escapes me right now, you are more willing to fight, right? I'm going to stand my ground. I'm going to fight for this. This is right. This is right. As you age, and, and if you've ever had an older mentor in your life, you know this to be true. An older person can come alongside, uh, this is really the work of the Holy Spirit, come alongside and say, have, well, I know this is how you feel about this, but have you ever considered this? It's not that an older person has the right to tell a younger person what they should do. If you're an old guy like me, you know that that doesn't work. But sometimes you can gently come along and say, look, I know that you're upset about this, but have you ever thought about this? Have you ever considered this? Have you ever thought that maybe put yourself in the shoes of the other person for a little bit? I put that scripture on Facebook, you know, Ezra, where they laid the foundation uh, to the rebuilt temple and and the people rejoiced, but there were others um, the heads of the tribes, the older priests who wept. And what was the difference in perspective? It was simply because one group had lived longer than the other. So from the oldest to the youngest, they finally gave up on their argument with Jesus because here's the thing that Christians, why, why there are Christians today and not just that we're not all just Jews, proselytes, is because Jesus is the ultimate interpreter of the text. So when we hear Jesus is asserting himself above the text, he says, this is the way you guys, you men, understood it. Uh, but I say to you, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now that, Jesus is saying, here, here's the real intent. is not just to keep you on one side of the fence when it comes to your sexual life which is good, right? That's important. Jesus is not, he's not abolishing that. He's not destroying that. He's not unnecessarily denigrating that. But he's saying, if you look deeper into your own heart and you read the words of the text, you know, here it comes, you know that men have a problem. Now, Women tell me that women can have a similar problem. I don't know. I'm not a woman. Don't plan on being a woman. Have no desire to be a woman. I'm a man. And when I read this text and Jesus says, uh, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart, as a man that speaks to me, and I recognize, oh, so there's, there's, a, there's a deeper understanding to this fulfillment, to use Jesus' word, that I 
can miss. So that brings us to this next statement then. The text, if we're to take the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible then, Jesus asserts the right to interpret the Old Testament. I hesitate to use the word differently, but I'll say the word more. Jesus asserts the right to interpret the Old Testament text correctly and more deeply on a deeper plane. The true understanding of the law. So much so that, uh, look at the end of chapter 5. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. There's really no place in the Old Testament that actually teaches that. Now, it's in quotes in the text. If you look at it, Jesus is speaking, and then they have single quote marks around it in the ESV. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. If you go searching for that specific phrase in the Old Testament, you won't find it. And some people say, see, Jesus... uh, The text can't be inspired because Jesus is quoting something that isn't there. But the people thought that that was what the Old Testament taught. That you could love people that were lovable, but you had every right to hate your enemy. How many have ever believed that? Well, we live in... We live in the show me state. So you know what? You want me to love you, you better, you better show me. You better straighten up, change your way, right? That, that's, that's the commerce of a shallow human understanding of the text. All those years you came to church and heard the rabbi teach on the text, you left the service and you said, I love the people I love, and I hate the people I hate. And that pleases God. And Jesus says, no, see, you're, it's a twisted uh, conclusion that you have taken away from, and, and look at what he says, but I say to you, there it is. Now, you can go through uh, Matthew chapter 5 in particular and underline the words, but I say to you over and over again, he is he is stepping above the text. He's stepping above the law. A great, as the book of Hebrews tells us, a greater than Moses is here. A prophet better than Moses is here. Jesus says, here, here's really what the Old Testament law and prophets teach, to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Wow. Well, excuse me, Jesus, but I don't want to be a follower of yours. I'll go back to the old way. Broad, shallow understanding. It seems like, and the vast majority of people, that was their response to Jesus. So so look at this statement. This is by Pete Enns. The text is a dialogue, a movement. So so this, this is the problem with fundamentalism, because... If you're a hardcore fundamentalist, what do you do with these passages in the Old Testament that require, for example, uh, for homosexuals to be uh, executed? Well, that's what it says. So there are, there are theonomists among us who believe the only way to straighten out, uh, straighten out the, the, 
the social mess that we're in now, not only in our country but around the world, is to go back to a strict application of the law of Moses. It's what Calvin tried to do in Geneva. I think, uh, if my memory serves me correctly, there were there were six uh, homosexuals who were burned at the stake in Calvin's Geneva. That's 16th century. The the concept of tolerance. We're we're very acquainted with not only the word tolerance but the concept of tolerance. Now, tolerance wasn't a social construct until. Um, the 17th century. People lived their lives with this kind of rigid order. And if you violated that rigid order, then you suffered the consequences of the law. And the civil authorities, as Calvin taught, the civil authorities were empowered by God, the church, and Scripture to execute God's law. We, you know, I mean... You've heard me say that I'm a Calvinist, but I would not have been comfortable living in Geneva. There were some people who weren't comfortable living in Geneva. They hated Calvin. In fact, they named their dogs after Calvin. Here, boy. Come on, boy. Calvin. Some things never change, right? Some things are always the same. Well, the, the text is a dialogue. It's moving us. How many know to go from, from Moses? Let, let's just take the, the journey from John chapter 8 where the Pharisees show up and say, "What Moses says that this woman should be stoned. What do you say? That mentality to this mentality where Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Well, that takes... That's a progressive movement, isn't it? So listen to what ends it. The text is a dialogue, a movement. The Bible's not a field guide to the Christian life, complete with a handy index to turn to the right verse. We are never going to get a free pass to avoid the hard work of discerning what God is saying, what God is saying. What is God saying? What is God, what, what is God requiring of us? So this is not an easy thing to do. It's a difficult. We don't want to turn the pages of Holy Writ. We don't want to turn the the scripture into some kind of wax nose that we just, uh, given our proclivities one day, we shape the wax nose one way. The next day, we shape the wax nose another way. We've already asserted that the only one, the only human being who has the right to interpret the text is Jesus. And he proclaims this right. He prays in John chapter 7, your word I have given to them. Wow. He is, then Jesus is asserting that he is the mediator of our understanding of the text. So it would be wrong. Here, now we, we come back to the passage today. It would be wrong for us to go to the end of the 16th chapter of Second Samuel and say, well, you know, David was a man after God's own heart, and he had a bunch of wives, so I guess it must be okay for me. 
Now, the Mormons did that for a while, and there are some cultic sects of Mormonism that continue that, sister wives, whatever that program is. I'm of the opinion that one wife is more than enough. And I think that women are probably of the opinion that one man is way too much. One man is more than enough. I, I you know, I, I don't even want to go there, right, to think of. And then David's son Solomon, whom the Bible tells us that the Lord loved, he really messes up, right? He's got 300 plus wives and 700 plus concubines. And we're saying, what is going, is, is God giving his stamp of approval. When God says David is a man after my own heart, does that mean that God approves of everything that David ever did? No. Really, you know, so it's taken 80 Sundays for me to realize this. The reason why David was a man after God's own heart is that David always pursued repentance no matter if it costs him dearly. Now, you and I, uh, I'll just speak for myself. That is something that I shy away from. If I can live a lie and maintain my own modicum of reconciliation or the way that I live my life in the world, then I will do that. But David, when the light came on, he said, as he said in, in the 12th chapter of 2 Samuel to Nathan, I have sinned against God. So there it is. I've done it. I admit it. I tried to hide it. I tried to send all sorts of people to, to, to cover it up. But the gig's up now. I admit it. And I am willing to pursue whatever path the Lord may declare and decree for me. And it, as we've seen, it's a path of blood. It's a path of death. It's a path of pain in David's own, own family. But he says, here it is. The only way to straighten this out is to cry out to the Lord and say, take not thy Holy Spirit away from me. It wasn't, certainly it wasn't because David was a perfect man. He was not a perfect man. In fact, David, the flaws of David are, are so multiplied in the text, you sometimes would wonder, why would they devote so much space in the Bible to this man? But it's exactly because of that. I got uh, just a couple of minutes, and, and we'll try to move this down the road a little bit if we can, and then we'll come to an end. So, so it's a text like this, then, among many in the Old Testament, where uh, the new atheists, Richard Dawkins being uh, one, uh, wrote the book uh, titled God is Not Great, The New Atheist will take a passage like this and say, a quote from Richard Dawkins, 
Dawkins. He says the the ubiquitous weirdness of the Bible. Ubiquitous means it's everywhere. He, this is what he says: the ubiquitous weirdness of the Bible. Now, I I, I resonate. There's something in me that resonates with that a little bit because when I read a passage like this, what do you guys think I should do? Well, go in and have sex with your father's concubines and everybody will know, boy, that's over with. That, to me, that's, can we all say it together? That is W-E-I-R-D as we were spelling words this morning. That is weird, right? So it it resonates a, a little little bit with me that, it's a culture, and these are people that we're removed in uh, time and space from them. It, it, it's difficult for us to wrestle with the text. He goes on to say that David power raped Bathsheba and engaged in murderous treachery toward her husband Uriah, one of David's loyal, mighty men. And then he quotes from the passage, of course, Second Samuel chapter 11. So Dawkins is not a believer. Well, he wasn't. He's dead now. He wasn't a believer. He said that it was, he didn't advise people to force their religious beliefs on their children. And yet, I I don't know if this is true or not. It could be just a rumor. And yet, Richard Dawkins had his children baptized um, in the Church of England. Now, listen to this, this next quote. The God of the Old Testament, this is Dawkins again, is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic racist. We're not talking about another person. This morning, we're talking about the God of the Bible here. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. That did not appear in the opinion section of the New New York Times. Dawkins, who's he talking about? He's not talking about Donald Trump. He's talking about God, the God of the Old Testament. And, and when I read that quote, it makes me kind of screw up my mouth like the church lady on Saturday Night Live. Hmm, thank you very much. Well, the church lady doesn't like that. But there are, there are so many people, now about one in 10, according to a 2015 Pew poll, about one in 10 American adults are atheists. One in 10. May their tribe decrease. But this is the way they look at the Old Testament text. They say, and Jesus called that God his father? Wow. Now, so how do we fashion then a solution to this? First of all, I do believe that the Bible at the, at the very beginning asserts and establishes one man, one woman in the bond of marriage. Of course, you're you're familiar with the passage, but look at it. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother 
and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now there is, there is a principle called the law of first mention. And so the first time that a particular subject is mentioned in the Bible, it comes with a kind of a trumpet announcement. This is important. This is, this will dominate and govern whatever follows. This will dominate and govern however else, whatever else you're going to read. So it seems as though what God is saying, and I use that phrase, word seems lightly, it seems as though God is saying, suggesting, perfect peace and harmony is available to all the peoples of of the earth, one man, one wife, in the bond of marriage. Now, one last scripture. So, so we have that in, in the very beginning of the Bible. And, and here we have the text in 2 Samuel chapter 16 that obviously comes many thousands of years later. Look at the, this last scripture, Deuteronomy 17, 17. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deutero means second. Do, do, to, deutero, deutero. Nomi comes from the word for law. So really Deuteronomy means the second law. In, in, in the book of Deuteronomy, we have a, uh, a catechizing, a cataloging of, of all the laws that were important to the life of Israel. Now, what does it say then in, in Deuteronomy 17, 17? In fact, so, so some people will say, look, well, look, Deuteronomy is way before 2 Samuel. So didn't David know that uh, Deuteronomy 17, 17 was written? It, it's, it's possible that during David's life, Deuteronomy wasn't a, a book as you and I understand it. In other words, the book of Deuteronomy, some people say, is kind of a collection. It is a summing up of the law. Now look what it says in 1717. This is about Israel's kings. He, meaning the king, shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. So it could be said then that David is living in violation at Absalom and, of course, Solomon after him in violation of this text. Was this text codified to this degree when David and Solomon were alive? That's, it's, it's debatable. But nonetheless, the cultural environment of the time allowed for kings to have, and, for example, if a man was married to a woman and that's where we get the word inconceivable. If she wasn't able to conceive and have children, then it was permissible then in that culture for a man to take another wife who would have children. Now, the new atheists throw their hands up and say, well, the Bible's just a mess. You know, there's, there's no sexual ethic in the Bible. You could just pretty much do whatever you want. 
and I, I'm not yet willing to subscribe to, to that ethic. I think there is a way of understanding from Genesis to Revelation what it is that God wants us to do. And Lord willing, we'll continue with that again next Sunday. Lord God Almighty, uh, we are your people. We dare not assert ourselves or stand over the text, the text that we've heard today. We certainly do not stand in judgment of others in the text. Neither do we stand in judgment of the text. We don't believe that the text is inferior to our understanding. We certainly don't believe, Almighty God, that if we were inventing a God, that we could invent a better God than the one who is described and revealed to us in the pages of Scripture. We come under the text. We bow our head underneath the yoke of the text. We bear up underneath the weight of the text. We let the text speak to us and judge us when necessary. Like a man looking into the mirror, we are not quick to remove ourselves from its gaze. We believe, Lord God Almighty, that you've given us the text to reflect back into our lives the deeper things that you have called us to. And we ask, Lord God Almighty, that you would send the Holy Spirit that we might find the grace to actually practice this principle, Lord, that you are, in fact, the perfect interpreter of the text. Help us in our broken way of living, O oh God, to lean into the text, to lean on you, feel the strength of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We would not run from the work of repentance, Lord God Almighty, but that we, like David, truly be men and women who follow after you. We ask this now in Jesus' name. For more information on Covenant Community Church, visit us online at www.covcomchu.org. That's covcomchu.org. Or give us a call at 314-869-4367. At Covenant Community Church, it's our prayer that the preceding message has served to glorify Christ and further God's work in your life.